Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theological Podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined, as always, by the resident theologian in training, uh, the master himself, <laughs> Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? I'm doing good. We're And ho- hopefully we're three years away from uh, Dr. Dr. himself. Uh, uh theological i don't i don't know we'll, we'll come up with we'll come up with some name um but doing good i think we're both in kind of a personal and ministry uh season of where we've got a lot going on yeah like um, uh kind of a, like a hurricane <laughs> that's we're we're within a ministry hurricane right now well, I'm not sure if I like the hurricane term because I'm now down near the coast and we're still in hurricane season. Okay. And I can't, I can't take a, uh, I can't take a hurricane. We had a storm that came through that had like 100 mile per hour winds. Yeah. Uh, about a month ago, uh, completely broken half a quarter of my fence. Of my fence. No wood's expensive. Yeah. Uh, so are roofs. Right. Uh, messed that all up. Uh, so I don't need. I don't need a hurricane. I've I've had my storm damage that I'm still working through. Um so you've had bodily damage though since the Yeah, that has Well, you've had correction since the last time yes. we recorded, right? Yeah, that that has not helped any of the the other ministry related stuff either. Uh I haven't been driving for oh man, over 2 months now. I haven't driven a car. Uh <laughs> So it's a little tougher to get around. Uh, I I am getting like I'm sitting normally right now as I'm talking. My my knee can go to ninety degrees now, so that's nice. Um, uh, I get to be off crutches in two weeks, so so that's good. Like the progress is happening. Physical therapy is going well, uh, but it will be good when I can drive again and have like regular office hour time working mm-hmm. at home is just not for me um oh i it's just I not know. good <laughs> i like i like i i i was thinking about this i was thinking about this today i i don't know what it is but i so i'm up and at the gym uh i i i get up and go to the gym about six o'clock almost every morning um so, especially in the middle of the day, like normal people too, but especially if you're up and working, you know, you've got the middle of the day slump, yep. you know, around 12, 1, when we're recording this, yep. when I kind of start having to rely heavily on coffee. Uh, Wednesdays are difficult because then you have to come back at church at 7 o'clock uh, and it's, you know, teaching all of that fun stuff. Yes. But uh, I... I don't know on the days that I that I work from home for one reason or another um I just I f- I feel less tired. I'm I could definitely be a work at home person uh but it's also just me at the house. Yeah. Like when I was in so, when I was in school, I could work from home. <laughs> like I could do all my uh, papers and everything. Uh, couldn't do it in the library. You know, I just, I needed there to not be people. That's yeah. the thing. 
Yeah, no, I that's 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 why I like the house. I'm a lot less tired just only having to not complaining about people, but right. people work is tiring work, yeah. even if they're great people. Right. Um and you know, and it's not bad to get to like work and do like laundry at the same time. Uh that's nice. Take take those days. breaks for your brain to just sit on uh, some stuff. So and Yeah. But no, I'm with you. But that's that's why the uh, for those listening, that's why the episodes have been, you know, hey, they said they were going to do the last Lord's Supper one. Where's that one at? Uh, that's why, just chaos for for both of us at the moment, uh, which is fine. You know, it's part it's part of it. That's the, you know, we're in storm season right now, so that's okay. That will more pass. ways than one. Yeah, that'll pass and. Uh, get easier to do some some other things we've we have been talking about what comes next and we have some one-off kind of episodes uh in the the tank here as well as uh another series uh that'll be uh rather lengthy actually similar to our new heavens new earth conversation last year was that last year or this year whenever that was i think Um, it was last year that that dominated a lot of uh, a, yeah, a it was of, last year. Uh, a number of episodes for us. So, but today we are going to finish the Lord's Supper conversation. This is uh, these all came out of the uh, master's thesis you wrote, right? Um, and so we've been using that as the material for this, the research you've done there, and all of this. And uh, as papers do. Uh, they come to a conclusion based on uh, all of the all the information that we've had before. And that's what we're doing in these podcast episodes. And this is uh, the appeal for an open table here, that, that this is what Luke's theology about the Lord's Supper is, is pointing to. Uh, and so Spencer is going to do a lot of, especially kind of the second half of this, just a lot of one thing after the other, uh, you know, here, here is the conclusions that are drawn as a result and, and all of that. So, uh, I don't anticipate everybody agreeing, uh, but that's fine. Uh, I do hope everybody listens and, uh, we would love to have questions, uh, sent our way and maybe do an episode on that sort of stuff. Uh, speaking of which, before we get into the episode here, if you have questions or comments or thoughts or things like that, you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Uh, you can also message us on Facebook at Thinking Theologically, and be sure to like Thinking Theologically to be alerted whenever we have new uploads and things go up. Uh, on occasion, when we're outside of storm season, we'll have additional articles and things like that. Um, and if you're not a fan of the page or check out thinkingtheologically.org, uh, then you'll miss those things. So, uh, just keep in contact with us. We'd love to hear from you and get your feedback and thoughts and questions on, on different things. All right, Spencer, we're going to talk about the open table today. Um, wh- what is, uh, I guess, what's the primer for the, the overall idea of open table here uh, before we get into the specifics yeah so you you mentioned that all of these uh episodes on the lord's supper this is part seven Mm -hmm. so seven episodes that have all come out of my thesis and uh, my thesis is made up 
of five chapters, and the majority of this uh, series has all followed along chapter four and five. So we're actually cutting out. Uh, we cut out three chapters and still had seven episodes. Um, <laughs> there you go. But the, the the reason we needed seven episodes is I actually have a copy sitting here in front of me. And chapter five starts on page 78. So go. this is like the conclusion of 77 pages of writing got me to make this argument. So this is, like you said, where my thesis and so where these episodes have all been leading to. Uh, I also want to mention, like you said, I'm assuming that not everyone who listens to this is going to agree, which is fine. Uh, not everybody on my defense committee agreed. Um, I've talked about this a little bit at uh, my church, and not everybody agreed as well, which is fine. Uh, this is in many ways. There are some things that we should all be able to agree on that we're going to talk about, and there's going to be other things uh, that in many ways are me just putting forth for people to consider sure. and to think about um, and to stir up additional conversation and to see where that conversation leads. And I'm hoping in one way or another that the conversation leads to uh, us better reflecting uh, the image of Jesus in our churches and better growing and transforming into the type of communities that God wants us to be. So on the show notes, I begin with the thesis, which is really the thesis of my thesis. So the, the, the statement that kind of summarizes what the entire thesis is about, where it's moving, and so ultimately what we're going to be talking about here uh, in this episode. If Luke's theology of the Lord's Supper is applied to the church's practice of the Lord's Supper— then the church must practice an open community offered to all, Christians, non-Christians, and the disabled. So my thesis was moving to that point of saying that our communion tables must be open to, and we ought to be inviting everyone to our practice of communion. Uh, Christians, so we're going to talk a little bit about division among Christians that I think Luke's theology of the Lord's Supper tears down. Uh, Non-Christians, so people outside of our church and faith communities, which I think Luke's theology even breaks down those barriers. And the disabled, that's going to be uh, maybe a little different uh, caveat that than what you've heard before. And honestly, that part about the disabled that we're going to, to talk about is something that I'm assuming many people have not thought about. Sure. Uh, if, if you aren't close with or have people in your family with low-functioning disabilities, it's likely not a question you've ever considered before. Uh, I will be honest, when I started writing my thesis, it was not a question that I had considered until I was at uh, Oklahoma Christian and I ran into one of my former professors who did my family science classes, who has a child with Down syndrome. And we were talking about my thesis, and he began talking to me about the struggles and the questions that his wife and him had been dealing with over their son with Down syndrome and his relation to 
the Lord's table. And the thing, questions that they were asking, the things that they were struggling with and trying to figure out, I thought could directly be addressed and answered by the argument that I was already making in my thesis. I had just never thought to apply the argument to that specific type of circumstance. And so I'll have a few brief things to to say about disabilities at the conclusion of this episode. Okay. But that's that's kind of the thesis, not just for this episode, but kind of a summary of my entire sure. thesis. Right on. Very good. Okay. Well, open table is exactly what it sounds like then. Table that is open to everyone. To all. Uh, and, well... Burden of proofs on you, I guess. Listen, I'm just along for the ride here. <laughs> okay. As far as the uh, as far as the topics concerned, you know, I I'll, I'll say I've been. I, I don't think there's been much disagreement from me, at least not directly on on the episodes leading up to this. Um, uh, I'll say, I guess, as a surrogate for the listener, that I'm. You know, I'm not. I'm not sure. I've I've looked over the notes and things like that, and I've been with you on the the process of all of this, obviously. Uh, but I'm interested to see then uh, if if one through six are true, which is how I felt about those things. Then, you know, does that equal seven here? So, I'm interested. I'm interested to see. Uh, to see how you draw the draw the conclusion together, or how you would say Luke draws the conclusion together, I suppose, which is yep. you know the right way to say that. Uh, okay, yeah. So we're starting with Christians, right? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. I want to. Uh, I, I want to start about. Well, I, I want to start first off and just establish some of the divisions that exist around the table already, okay. um, and have through much uh, or actually most of Christian and church history, this kind of, I think what this does is it helps us kind of situate ourselves in this problem of division around the table. Even if we think that there should be boundary lines uh, that are drawn about who's included and who is not included at the table, uh, which is, is fine, um, it's not where I am, but th- that's that's perfectly fine, and it's actually been the case for most of human, uh, for most of uh, church history. Okay. Is pe- people and Christians have believed that? I'll mention more of that in a minute, but it kind of helps us situate ourselves with what the case is within churches and what the case has been regarding division. So, it, it seems to me that throughout uh, church history, there have been two kinds of divisions around the Lord's Supper, around the Lord's table. The first is internal division, which dates all the way back to the first century. So in 1 Corinthians 11, we see division around the table. Uh, particularly, it seems there between rich and poor. Uh, you've got the, the the Corinthians are showing up to take the Lord's Supper. And you've got some people that are eating a meal and some people that don't have the money or the means for a meal and all of this is going on and it's to cause causing some divisions between the rich and the poor in the Corinthian congregation. Uh, that's an interesting passage to discuss on its own, but division within the church that's happening around the Lord's table dates all the way back to first Corinthians, uh, yeah. which uh, is typically dated in the fifties. So 
um, with within you know 20 25 years of Jesus death you already have division around the Lord's table internally sure. uh, within individual congregations uh, you have internal divisions within Christianity as a whole so you have you've had divisions historically along denominational lines so uh, one way this has happened throughout history has to do with the the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper so Catholics believe in transubstantiation that is that the the bread and the cup turn into the literal body and blood of Christ mm -hmm. Protestants believe in a whole host of of things about Christ's presence, but they don't believe in transubstantiation. So it's kind of what, what makes a Protestant a Protestant is not what they believe particularly about Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, just that they don't believe in transubstantiation. So, uh, for example, Martin Luther uh, said that Christ is in, with, and under the elements. Yeah. So the, the bread and the cup aren't actually Christ, but... Jesus is everywhere around them, is kind of what Martin Luther said. And he believed in the real presence of Christ, that Christ is present. He's just not actually present in the, the, the elements. The elements, the bread and the, the cup, aren't him. Yeah. And that goes all the way to, in our Church of Christ restoration heritage, we have leaned kind of away from a real presence of Christ and more towards a um, memorializing of Christ. We think we've tended to think less of Jesus being present when we take it and more about us as individuals, us memorializing and thinking about and reflecting upon what Jesus did in the past. Um which we are to do, but that's also kind of problematic. I don't want to get too much into sure. to that, but we kind of have re almost rejected that Jesus is present at the the Lord's mm. Supper. Uh but I'll mention Jesus' presence uh, here a little later. But uh, the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that divided Protestants from Catholics had to do with the presence of Jesus in the, the Lord's Supper. And, you know, we could even go into before that uh, within Catholicism who was and was not allowed to take of the Lord's Supper because of the presence uh, of Christ. And some of that even still extends to today. Who is going to be allowed to take or not to take? Uh, the real body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Uh, you, you have some uh, division along denominational lines, even within uh, our Church of Christ uh, heritage. Um, we kind of... Uh, historically, at least to a degree, and still plenty prevalent, I think, uh, contemporarily, is... The, the tendency for people in churches of Christ to believe that we're the only people going to heaven or we're the only ones that have things right or something like yeah. that. So uh, with that, uh, sometimes within our Church of Christ heritage, it kind of becomes the Church of Christ versus everyone. And what that causes us to do is we focus on how we're different. So we... We end up preaching and teaching a lot about why everyone else is wrong, but a lot of the times never why we think we're right or what we actually believe. And you see that in the Lord's Supper. So 
we in Churches of Christ, we take the Lord's Supper every week. And we're one of uh, the few groups that do take the Lord's Supper every single week. And I've found for many in Churches of Christ, our focus on the Lord's Supper is sometimes simply, hey, we take it every week. And so we're different and better than everybody else. It be, The fact that we take it every week, the way we take the Lord's Supper becomes a way to distinguish us from every other Christian group. And again, that becomes a way to divide. Sure. You're wrong. We're right uh, over the way that we take the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper, which, as I'm going to argue, is meant to be a place uh, to bring people together, has become in many cases, something that brings people apart, whether it's because of the presence of Christ, Catholic versus Protestant, or uh, whether or not you take the Lord's Supper every week or every month or every quarter or, or whenever people take the Lord's Supper, or in the case of Corinth, between the rich and the poor, and uh, sometimes even regarding righteousness, what what we think about a certain person. So, some some congregations and and every Christian congregation, not just Churches of Christ, but every Christian congregation draws lines of membership. This is what you have to do to be yeah. a Christian. These are the things you do. These are the things that you don't do. These are the things you can do and be a member here. And when we draw those lines of membership, we're generally also drawing lines of who's allowed to be around the table. And I don't think we always think about it like that. Because we're like, we're not telling them they can't take the Lord's Supper. We're telling them they can't be members here. But generally, that's the same thing. Because if you're not going to be included here, then that also means you're not going to be included in our participation of the Lord's Supper. And so when we think about ways that we draw boundaries of who's included in the church and who is excluded, I I give some uh, examples of people who are criminals, uh, people who are members of the LGBTQ community, maybe people who have same-sex attraction, uh, divorcees, people who have been divorced. Uh, I've seen churches that have drawn boundaries on all these things. Sure. Because, uh, b- because you're divorced or because you're a criminal or because you have same-sex attraction, whatever it may be, you're not included here. You can't be a member here and therefore... You can't share with us around the table, right? They don't always say you can't share with us around the table, but to exclude someone from membership is also to exclude them from the table in the way that we typically take the Lord's Supper, right? Because if the Lord's Supper is this act for only the church to take together, which is typically the way that we think about it, if the Lord's Supper is just an act for the church to take together and we're excluding you from membership in the church, then we're also excluding you from the Lord's table, which is for the church. I, I hope that line of, of yeah. reasoning yeah. carries. Um, but there's also external division. Uh, so we tend to exclude from the table a non-believer who has not been baptized. So, like I just said, it's generally believed that the Lord's Supper is an enriching activity for the Christian rather than the non-Christian. So, uh, and there's a whole host of ways that people will say this. So, maybe it's, if you think of more of our Church of Christ heritage, maybe it's, well, if you're thinking about the death and 
resurrection of Jesus, then and when you take the Lord's Supper, then you obviously have to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus in order to take the Lord's Supper. Or uh, some may talk about, and some of the church fathers did, that the Lord's Supper, in the way that food sustains our physical lives, that the Lord's Supper sustains our spiritual lives. So it helps to nourish and sustain our life in Christ. That would mean you have to have a life in Christ. Right. Right. To take the Lord's Supper and to receive the nourishment from it. Um, so for a whole host of, of different reasons, most Christian groups, most churches would say that a non-believer, so generally is defined by someone who has never been baptized, is someone who is excluded from the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is an enriching activity for the Christian. And from that line of reasoning, that means that we also exclude people who cannot believe. So in other words, if you have to believe and be baptized to be a Christian— and you have to be a Christian to take the Lord's Supper, then if you can't believe and be baptized, then you can't be a Christian, then you can't take the Lord's Supper. And so the people that normally that would exclude, that's where the disabilities come in. So someone with a low-functioning disability who cannot believe and therefore cannot be baptized, who in that way cannot be a Christian would also be excluded from the table. So here's kind of the way the logic works. If a Christian is defined by whatever, repentance, baptism, etc., if that's what defines a Christian, and a person does not need to perform those actions because they are unable to understand them and are unable to sin, then they have no need for the Lord's Supper, which is an enriching activity for the believer. That's what I think I would argue most people believe, even if they don't say it like that. And I'm hoping that logic fun- uh, follows as well. It's not that people believe that someone with a disability is going to hell, but most believe if you have a low-functioning disability, you can't understand right from wrong, then you can't sin. If you can't sin, you there's no need for repentance and baptism. And if if, if you can't sin and you can't understand, then you can't fully become a believer because you can't understand what belief is. And if all of that is null and void, I think most people would say, well, there's no need for the Lord's Supper. Sure. Um, because the Lord's Supper is that enriching activity for those who believe, for those who have been baptized, for those have, who have repented, those who have an active faith in Jesus. And... If you're unable to get there, it's not that we're condemning you. It's just that most people would fail to see why such a person would have any need for the Lord's right. Supper. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, but your what what your the logic makes sense is what I'm saying. I'm not saying I agree with that. Um, yeah, no, I. It, so this this whole thing it sounds like is very much a perspective shift of like what, and we spent a lot of episodes talking about this, what are we doing when we come together? Uh, And what should we be doing when we come together? Uh, If this is regarded as a, this is something for the believer and it's enriching, 
only for the believer and all that stuff, then it's going to cut out these other groups of non-believers or those that are unable to do so at least, you know, fully or to whatever capacity, right? Um, but maybe that's not the yeah, right way if, to look at the table and what it's supposed to be. If, like you said, if the Lord's Supper is just for the believer, then it makes logical sense. Well, we exclude non-believers, and we exclude those who cannot believe, and then you ask, how do we define belief? Sure. And if we define belief as only what our group does, then it would also make sense to exclude everyone who doesn't believe the exact same thing that we do. And that's where you get to some of the divisions, like in the Protestant Reformation, over the presence of Christ in the yeah. Lord's Supper. And you know, you had some of the Reformation leaders that because of some of those things and other things that they were saying were forbidden from taking the Lord's Supper in Catholic churches. And that's kind of what helped drive the establishment of other churches uh, during the Protestant Reformation. That's a very oversimplification of what happened during the Protestant Reformation. Sure. But um, like you said, all of that makes logical sense if we're coming from the perspective that the Lord's Supper is an enriching activity for the believer, if that's how we're defining it. And like you said, what I'm arguing is for a paradigm shift of saying that our fundamental belief about the Lord's Supper is what's wrong. Like, let's change the Lord's Supper isn't just an enriching activity for the believer. It's an enriching activity for everyone. And if it's for everyone, then all of the excluding that we do no longer makes logical sense. Okay, yeah. And and we spent some prior episodes talking about the purpose and being rooted in Passover and what all that stuff means in the present as well and all that. So if you have not listened to previous episodes, by the way, like go do that, <laughs> go do that uh, before you come to this one. Um, that's, that's the due diligence required. I think before you can get to a, a conclusion episode on, on a topic. Uh, okay. So it, paradigm shift. That's, that's the thought process here. Uh, and that paradigm shift will move us away from the lines to draw to see who is allowed in and seeing it in a different way that says, no, the table is inclusive. Uh, anybody can be involved in it. Uh, this is where, uh, I guess, monologue is the right term. Uh, <laughs> this is where you have a, a, quite a bit to say uh, about inclusivity and in, in various groups here and all of this. Um, a lot of it pointing us back through some of the Luke content that we have already mm -hmm. discussed. Um, yeah, so j jump in with inclusivity. Where where do we see this take place, and then how does it apply here to the, the table? So I think when we think about inclusivity around the table, that inclusivity for the Christian comes in three different forms, and the these forms will get progressively more controversial. Um, and also, I think, progressively harder for a lot of people to hear because in many ways they attack a lot of the beliefs and practices that we're already engaged in. So the first area of inclusivity is inclusivity in individual and global Christian communities. So thinking about inclusivity as a community. So not 
you and me as individuals being inclusive, but you're in my church's church as a as individual communities being inclusive as a communal whole. So uh, I, I think that the Lord's Supper invites all followers of Jesus to the table to experience together the unifying presence of Christ. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be this place where all Christians are drawn together and unified uh, around the table. And I think in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is dealing with division around the table in Corinth, I think that's his main point, is in essence to say the Lord's Supper is a place Play, the, the Lord's table is a place of unity, not of division. And you Corinthians are making a mess of all that. Yeah. And that's also true for us. Uh, the Lord's table is a place of unity, not of division. Uh, the inclusivity of the supper breaks down the historic barriers between both denominations and different beliefs about Christ's presence in the supper. It breaks down barriers within individual communities, such as between rich and poor, between male and female. And I think for most people, and, and I hope I'm right in saying this, like 95% of people, I think we're all on board with that. That the Lord's Supper, the, the Lord's Table should be a place that unifies us regardless of our beliefs, at least outside of our belief and faith in Jesus. Sure. I think most of us agree with that. I, I know there's exceptions. Um, and But I think at least most of the people that will be listening to this, I think, would agree with that first statement. Um, that the Lord's Supper is this place of unity for all people who place their faith in Jesus. And we can deal with differences in beliefs another time. Sure. But the barriers that we try to put up for whatever reason— based on what we believe about certain things or between whether rich and poor or male or female or, or however else we want to put up barriers, uh, the Lord's Supper, as particularly, I think, as an experience of Jesus who brought people together, uh, Jesus who died for all people, I think breaks down those barriers within communities. But... It also breaks down barriers within our lives. So I think the inclusivity of Jesus' table that we see in Luke's gospel is meant to bring about inclusivity in all aspects of our lives. So not just inclusivity at the Lord's table, but inclusivity at all of our tables. Okay. So that's where the idea of hospitality comes in. So I think Jesus in Luke not only says, look at the way that you're divided around the Lord's table, similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, but I think he's also saying, look at how you're divided in all your other aspects of life. Like, who are you inviting to the table at your home? Does your home table look like the Lord's table, or does it look different? Are you excluding people from that table as well? Um, by weaving the themes of Jesus' acts of table fellowship, throughout the gospel into his account of the Last Supper, Luke challenges believers to reflect upon Jesus' inclusive practices as they partake of the supper. Partaking of Jesus' body in the bread is a reminder of what Jesus did in his body. 
specifically for Luke, the way Jesus included the body of others. Our partaking of the Lord's Supper is a moment where we think about our entire life and we ask, does my life look like Jesus' life? And for Luke, that centers around inclusivity. Does my life include the same people that Jesus' life included? And in Luke, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. On one level, this demonstrates Jesus' willingness to be identified with those living outside the typical boundaries of righteousness for faithful Jews. Jews, particularly the Pharisees, had established boundaries for what it looks like to be a righteous follower of God. And for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners is for him to be identified with people who are beyond the boundaries that were set by particularly the Jewish establishment of the first century. On another level, Jesus is fellowshipping with those excluded by those Jewish leaders, for example, the Pharisees, because of their sinful or treasonous lifestyle. In the eyes of the Pharisees, for Jesus to associate with such people is for him to support a lifestyle that is contrary to the law and threatens to bring God's judgment upon the people. And and that's an interesting point, and and I'm going to mention this in a minute, how the Pharisees are thinking that for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners is for him to support that way Mm. of life, which they believe, and many times they're correct, that that way of life is breaking the law that God had given. And for them to break the law that God had given threatens to bring God's judgment not just upon them, but on the entire nation, on all of the people. Now, uh, any application of this point of Jesus' fellowship with tax collectors and sinners in Luke must also account for the theme of forgiveness and release, which we have talked about in previous episodes. Jesus does not merely share a table with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke, Jesus calls them to repentance. For example, Levi is identified as a sinner in need of repentance in Luke 5.32. The lost parables of Luke 15 that most of us are familiar with, the the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. Those lost parables in Luke 15, a defense by Jesus of his table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. It starts out with people seeing, oh, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he responds to that accusation with these parables, which illustrate the desirability of sinners coming to repentance. Jesus is illustrating there, I eat with tax collectors and sinners that I may bring them to repentance in a similar way that a shepherd might go out and find one lost sheep to bring him out, to bring him back into the fold, is Jesus' point in Luke 15. And so all of these themes are brought together, as we've talked about, in the way that Luke tells the story of the Last Supper and therefore of Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. And so the question Christians must ask themselves upon remembrance of the inclusivity of Jesus' table as they partake of the Lord's Supper at Christ's table is whether they are extending the same inclusive invitation characteristic of the kingdom as Jesus. Are they reaching out to Christians or really to anyone outside the walls of contemporary church buildings, especially those ostracized by religious leaders. This, uh, because for example, in Jesus' day, religious leaders such as the Pharisees 
said, these people who do these things are not part of the group of good and righteous mm-hmm. Jews. So you can't have anything to do with them. And if you have something to do with them, then you're supporting their sin. And I'm hoping that sounds very similar to maybe things that you have heard from pulpits even today of religious leaders or preachers saying, these people who do these things are not a part of the church. They're not truly Christians. And so you can't have anything to do with those people. And if you have anything to do with those people, then you're automatically supporting their sin. The problem with that line of logic is Jesus did the exact opposite. He said, those are the very people you're talking about. Those are the ones I want to spend my time with. Uh, And so, when we take the Lord's Supper and we remember that Jesus did that, as we sit at Jesus' table and we remember those are the kinds of people that were excluded by the religious leaders of his day, those were the people that Jesus invited to his table, we ask ourselves, am I living a life like Jesus? Uh, This may look like beginning a prison ministry, to reach out to those often forgotten by Christian establishments because of their sin. It may mean finding ways to support single Christian mothers or women who have had an abortion. Those many churches today will label as sinners worthy of exclusion. It may mean inviting to our literal tables and to the Lord's table a Christian members of the LGBTQ community to engage in the dialogue and hospitality many Christians today are unwilling to have. Now, my point in saying all of that is not to argue whether any of those practices that I just named are right or wrong. That's not the the point of this episode is not to argue about morality, Uh, but simply to give some examples of of people whom modern religious leaders might exclude because of sin. As I mentioned a moment before, many believers today believe, as the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, that association with such individuals always supports sin. Regardless of an individual's stance on such issues, Luke's Gospel presents a Jesus who stands firm in his convictions regarding sin by calling people to repentance, while not allowing those convictions to exclude them from the table. I think that's an important thing to recognize is I'm not saying that Jesus says do whatever you want, nor is Luke. Jesus had convictions, and he stands on those convictions, and it's based on those convictions that he calls people to repentance. But what Jesus does not do is allow those convictions to exclude, exclude people from the table. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, many of whom are never developed as characters in the gospel, and probably many who never actually accepted the kingdom. Jesus for example, invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house without any repentance requirement, and that interaction ended with salvation brought to the house. Jesus did not require righteousness or repentance for fellowship. All Jesus required was the willingness to sit at a table. Do we show that same kind of inclusivity in all aspects of our life, and particularly to fellow believers? Mm. Do we exclude people, not just from the Lord's table, but from the tables in our homes, people who are believers in Jesus, 
because we have labeled them a sinner because of something that they have done or something that they are doing and saying, well, I can't have anything to do with that person. Whereas Jesus might be the one saying, no, that's the very person you should invite over to your house. Even if they are living in sin. Zacchaeus is my favorite example. Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, repent, and then we'll eat together. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, let me eat with you, and that inter- and that dinner will l- then lead you to repentance. Yeah. There's um, a, a couple things, uh, I think, to throw with that. One, uh, am, I, am I correct in thinking, and I assume you know this, am I correct in thinking that uh, the word, the Greek for hospitality has to do with uh, is that love of foreigners? Yes, it's it's very much um, rooted in. Well, I even think of. To me, the best example of that point is uh, uh, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, yes. Leviticus nineteen. Well, and <clears throat> and just all the Old Testament laws in connection to showing yeah. that of. The, the the fields and all these or if a sojourner comes through remember you were a sojourner if there's a foreigner remember that exactly the way that you treat the foreigner because in Leviticus 19 the neighbor there uh, 1918 the neighbor there is specifically your Israelite neighbor but Leviticus 18 ends with saying if a sojourner if a foreigner comes through your land you treat them as if they were a fellow Israelite which means that you love them as you love your neighbor. And Leviticus 19 is all rooted at the beginning, be holy as God is holy. It, to be holy as God is holy means that you treat not just your Israelites, but the foreigners in a certain way. Yeah. those, um, those You show love and hospitality. Yeah, those that are, just by definition, those that are outside. Somebody outside coming in, this is how you treat and accept them and, and all of this. Um, alongside all of that, and this doesn't... The, the book itself does not deal with the Lord's Supper specifically, but it deals with the hospitality and inviting into homes. Uh, the Gospel Comes with a House Key is, is a very good book, particularly as it relates to what you mentioned, um, uh, the LGBTQ community, because the author was, and it was through dinner at a uh, through several dinners and home at, at in the home of a christian family that caused her to want to know more about god make the changes uh, and all of that stuff now that's not the lord's supper but we need to not like we i don't know why we look at the table and all of the food descriptions and all of these things and the fact that the lord's supper was alongside eating uh, a larger thing together uh, very early on. We, we, we hear all the illustration and terminology of Lord's table and then go, yeah, but that's not like the same as table table, like dinner table and stuff. No, that's that's the reason that language is used, why it's connected to Passover, why it's connected to sitting at the table eating together is so that we would go, yeah, we open up our homes, our tables to everyone. We can all agree with that, I believe, that, that that that's shown there pretty clearly. There's a reason it's called the Lord's Table. I think that connection—I think it's reasonable to make that connection mm-hmm. of what you do at one table should be done at all tables, because um, the goal here is to reach those uh, that are outside. Yeah, and it's it's 
like you said, I think it's important to realize that early on the Lord's Supper was part of a larger meal um, that the church would share together. And that even when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was part of a larger mm-hmm. meal. In that case, the Passover meal. Now, we're, I, I intentionally didn't get into this in, in this episode, I'll, so I'll just briefly mention it. it. It's more on kind of the scholarly level of understanding this stuff, which most people don't care <laughs> about. But uh, the I, I think that the lord's supper transition transition and i think i've mentioned this in previous episodes into a more liturgical or worship practice fairly early on Uh, there's possibly evidence of that in matthew and mark's account of the institution of the lord's supper which does not include the mention of a meal luke brings that back in um and luke is the the third gospel that's written. So Luke brings that tradition back into the gospel tradition of this whole meal context. But I, and I, so I would argue that part of what Luke is doing is I think he's seeing possibly a Lord's Supper that has become very liturgical, very wooden, removed from a larger meal. And that maybe churches are starting to forget the original context of the Lord's Supper. Mm. And it is starting to become that, yeah, it's different from our other meals and our other practices. And Luke may be writing into that change uh, towards the end of the first century and saying, no, let's remember the original context of the table. And it's bigger than the Lord's table. It's the entire ministry of Jesus at a table. And so it's possible that Luke is writing into that. And if he is, though, I will say he wasn't very successful because by the time you get into the second century, sinners are being excluded from the table and it becomes a very exclusionary place very early on. Yeah. Like we, we know in the second century it was like that. So, And there seems to be evidence that that was even beginning to happen in the first century. And Luke's gospel, I think, stands as a warning against that, which has been largely unheard throughout Christian history and something that I would argue needs to a voice that needs to be brought back into the conversation about what our communion practices ought to look like. Okay. So, uh, the next, next part of this specifically deals with, let's talk about the, the non-Christian and all of this, I guess I'll preface this, um, because we've kind of mentioned it. But all, all of this discussion is interesting to me. Um, I'll, I'll put it in these terms because this is the actual conversation I had uh, talking about prayer many years ago. And individual I was speaking to said prayer is for the Christian. It's access to God that only the Christian is able to have. Um, you know, the, does God hear the, the prayer of a sinful individual, that being a non-believer, I guess. Does God hear the prayer of a non-believer? And this person's take was, no, not really. Um, And I was more on the uh, yes, but it's not not the same relationship, but that doesn't mean he hears nothing. Um, At any rate, uh, so bringing all that stuff up, I said, I would encourage the, (laughs) I would encourage, I would still encourage the non-believer to seek out God in that way, even if, 
mm-hmm. even if it's not quite the same as the believer, the relationship, all that sort of stuff. Um, that's kind of how this feels to me here of, I, I can even think that it is not appropriate for the non-Christian to take it, and I'm not saying that, but I, I can feel that way. And the non-Christian taking it, if if it is wrong, it's you know judgment on themselves. <laughs> it's not. It's it's them them partaking of it is not having some effect on me unless I choose for it to, I suppose. But just even from that standpoint, if all they're doing is just eating something and drinking something at the end of the day, then that's still you know what is that doing? Yeah, <laughs> harmfully yeah. and. And I think we have the temptation to forget the thing that Israel forgot. So in Exodus uh, 19, right before God gives the Ten Commandments, and he kind of gives Israel their mission statement, if you Mm -hmm. will. Like he says, you are my... You know, special people, holy nation, royal priesthood, all that Peter will go on to repeat about the the church. Uh, God makes a statement in there because the whole earth is mine. Like at the very beginning, God reminds Israel, you weren't the only people. Like it's the entire earth. All peoples are mine. And Israel had a temptation to forget that, to make God their possession. And I think the church has the same problem. We want to, God's ours. He's not yours. And I think God would say, no, I'm the God of the entire world. Well, earth. and to build on that, because I've been going through Genesis this year on Sunday nights, and so it's just very <laughs> fresh there. We talked about the, uh, we're getting a little off, but this all connects, I promise. Um, the desire of, Abraham for his son, Isaac, to not marry a Canaanite, and then um, Isaac and his desire for Jacob, and Isaac and Rebekah's noted problem twice in the text that Esau had married uh, Hittites and all of this, uh, that there is this you know desire not, not to marry a Canaanite, marry, marry somebody who is ultimately part of Abraham's family, just the other brother, uh, but those people that are uh, at least loosely connected and committed to God and what he's seeking to do. But I made the point that this is not some God hates Canaanites law. Like that's, that's not what this is about. Uh, and when we see it come up later as an actual law, that's not what it's about. What it is about is um, God wanting us to connect with mm-hmm. people who are a part of the mission. But I made this point and said, let's not forget the whole promise of Genesis 12 is to be a blessing to all nations. If Israel is picked, it's because they are picked to be the blessing and light to all nations. Mm-hmm. He's not their God. He he's They have this connection with God so that they can give that connection to everyone else if they're doing their job properly. And that, and that has not changed. Uh, as we've we've come to our day and age now. Uh, so I guess from my frame of mind, it's connecting communion as a part of, of that, uh, that he is God of all seeking to be a blessing to all nations <laughs> through Jesus, and that can be accomplished perhaps uh, through the table here, um, if you convince me, I don't know. <laughs> well, right. let's see. Uh so, the inclusivity of non-Christians. So, inviting 
non-Christians to partake in communion, which is also called open communion. So I want to define open communion as we get started with this portion of the argument. I'm, I'm defining open communion as the public opening of the church's practice of communion. So I think a distinction must be made between denying communion and publicly inviting the unbaptized to participate in the church's communion practice. In other words, a lot of churches, and the Church of Christ is one of them, they're not like it's not like we check IDs at the door. Sure. Right? You can yeah, since since COVID pretty much all the churches that I go to now still and forever will i think at this point still use the uh little communion we, we actually made the transition that everybody picks long ago <laughs> so so but think about the think about the pods mm-hmm. for a second so you know we have them sitting in the foyer you pick them up when you come in um there's nobody standing there right asking you know have you believed and been baptized uh and And if you say no, you can't pick up a communion pot, right? There's nobody standing there doing that. Or even if you're passing around the trays, the people passing around the trays aren't asking anyone that question. Uh, So, but open communion. Now, I I will say there are some church traditions that do do something similar to that. Yes. Right, that you, you do have to meet certain requirements. So open communion is not just saying that... Uh, everyone can take it. We're just not going to ask questions. It's the public opening of the church's practice of communion. It's publicly inviting the unbaptized to participate in the church's communion practice. It, it, it's in essence a church taking a public stance about what they believe about the Lord's Supper. That's what how I'm defining open okay. communion. So. Uh, something that goes beyond just what we practice like in churches of Christ. And so I put this question in there. Does the church of Christ have open or closed communion? And my answer would be yes, because I think it's a little bit of both. Like I said, we don't, you know, check IDs at the door. We're not going to stop anyone right, from right. taking communion, generally speaking. I'm sure there's exceptions, but generally we're not going to s- s- tell anyone no. But when you think of publicly, um, what are we preaching from our pulpits? Uh, what are we teaching in our Bible classes? If somebody comes up and asks, if they come to the preacher or the elders or something and ask, can so-and-so take the, the Lord's Supper? How are we answering those questions? And the way we answer those questions or the way we teach or preach in those situations is more of a closed communion. Yeah. At least in in my experience. I, I know very few that... Um, in those situations would continue to display an open communion. So uh, that's why making that distinction is important to me because I'm not just, because I I think that the Church of Christ is kind of between those two because we don't tell people no, but in our public preaching and teaching and in our private conversations, we do teach close communion. And so a truly open communion goes even beyond what we do in Churches of Christ of it's not just it's not merely not telling people no. Sure. Uh, it's something more than that. So and, and, and that's what I mean by because I know I've had people when I've made this argument say, well, don't we already have open communion? And I'm like, well, yes, because we don't tell people no, but. 
the fact that you're asking that question, I think, shows that we don't. Not in the way that I'm defining it. Because the people that would ask me that question are generally those that wouldn't get up and teach that. But they're like, but we don't stop people. So aren't we, well, I would say truly open communion. And I think what Luke's getting at is something a little bit beyond that. So let me make my argument for for that. Uh, First off, if has been argued, the Lord's Supper in Luke's gospel is the culmination of Jesus' table fellowship and is therefore to be read in light of such table fellowship, then the opening of table to outsiders, that is non-Christians or the unbaptized, should be a logical conclusion. Jesus' table fellowship throughout the gospel is with tax collectors and sinners, those outside of traditional Jewish standards of righteousness. In Luke, Jesus agrees with the Pharisees that these individuals are sinners, yet he still sits at table with them. That's an important thing, right? It's not that the Pharisees say these people are sinners and Jesus says, no, they're not. It's the Pharisees say these people are sinners. Jesus says, you're right, these people are sinners, but I'm going to eat at a table with them. Yeah. And then it is at the table that Jesus announces forgiveness and salvation. So Jesus doesn't announce forgiveness and salvation before and then sits at a table with them. That does happen. Levi in chapter 5 is an example of that. Uh, But generally... Jesus first sits at a table with them and then announces forgiveness and salvation. So throughout, Jesus is accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And I think the point is generally they're still tax collectors and sinners. So you even think of Levi in chapter 5 who chooses to follow Jesus and then throws this banquet. Luke tells us that at the banquet, we're not just Levi's, but others like him. Other tax collectors and sinners. And there's no, we, Luke doesn't tell us anything about, did they decide to follow Jesus? And I think the inference is no. That Levi follows Jesus, brings Jesus over to his home, and then throws this big party, and all these other tax collectors and sinners start coming, and this is their first time to meet Jesus. I, that's what, that seems to make the most sense to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but that seems to make the most sense. And Jesus... Even in that situation, doesn't say, hey, Levi, uh, I can't be a part of this meal until all these people repent first. Right. That's not what Jesus does. And perhaps some people, as a part of that meal, end up following Jesus. We we, we don't know. Luke uh, never tells us. But it's at the table that Jesus generally announces forgiveness and salvation. Here are some examples. I've mentioned this one before. Jesus does not require belief or repentance from Zacchaeus before inviting himself to Zacchaeus' table, resulting in salvation coming to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. That is all that was necessary for Jesus' table. In fact, Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus, desiring to share a table with him, with a sinner, rather than the other way around. In Luke 7, When a sinful woman comes to Jesus' feet at the home of Simon the Pharisee, Jesus does not exclude her as an intruder to the table, but treats her as if this is where she belongs and announces that her sins have been forgiven. By acting in such a way, Jesus is redefining the boundaries of the kingdom, of inside versus outside, and of the sacred versus the profane. The inclusivity of sinners, Evidence in Jesus' table fellowship throughout the gospel is even practiced by Jesus at the Last Supper. I think this was the uh, 
uh, two episodes ago where we talked about this. Uh, while some would argue that the Last Supper is an example of Jesus only including believers, that is his disciples in the Lord's Supper, the disciples' presence suggests the opposite. Luke moves Judas, Jesus' words about Judas's betrayal to after the Lord's Supper. The reader makes her way through the intimate dinner setting between Jesus and his disciples, in which the Passover is reinterpreted in light of Jesus' passion, before realizing that a sinner, the betrayer of Jesus, has been at the table the whole time. Additionally, the other disciples, while not betrayers of Jesus in the same sense as Judas, also forsake Jesus by the end of the Passion Week. The commitment and understanding of the disciples at the Last Supper, particularly Judas, is far from the type of commitment and understanding many contemporary churches expect from those invited Mm. to the table. Jesus, all the way up to and including the Last Supper, sits at table with sinners. The same practice must be evidenced among the followers of Jesus. If the church allows the Lucan theology of Jesus' fellowship and hospitality and the Lord's Supper to guide their practice, then sinners, that is, non-believers and the unbaptized, must be included. To exclude anyone from the Lord's table is to cut against the grain of Jesus' entire ministry and even his institution of the Lord's Supper. It reflects the image of superiority evidenced by the Pharisees at table with Jesus in Luke 14 and that of the disciples at table with Jesus following the Lord's Supper when they dispute among themselves about who is the greatest. For believers to focus on personal achievement as if they have done something to deserve a seat at Jesus' table more than others or to fill the Lord's table with those who look like them, in other words, Christians, or to assume that they rather than Jesus, or the host, and decide who is and who is not invited, is to create a table that looks drastically different than the eschatological table meant to be experienced at the Lord's Supper. I think that last thing is important to remember, that Jesus is the host. In other words, you and I don't get to decide who's invited to the table, Jesus does. And so I would argue that the entire life and ministry of Jesus is Jesus telling us who he wants at his table. So, in Luke 14, for example, Jesus responds to the Pharisees by illustrating how the eschatological banquet will be open to all, especially those who look a lot different than the Pharisees, in order that the Pharisees might model such inclusion at their tables. The Eucharistic language of the Emmaus story, in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, It demonstrates that Luke believes Jesus is present at the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper isn't just a memorial for Christians to remember the past, but that Jesus is present. In the Lord's Supper, like the disciples' experience in Emmaus, Jesus is made known to the participants, and their eyes are opened in the breaking of bread. In the limbo of personal experience, a person's heart is opened to experience the risen Lord and understand the story of God climaxing with Jesus. Also, I want you to consider the significant teaching moments of Jesus at the table in Luke. At the table, Jesus redefines the boundaries of the kingdom. In chapter 5 in the story of Levi, he identifies himself as the one who announces the forgiveness of sins when he gives the woes to the Pharisees and lawyers in chapter 7. He reprioritizes life 
when he eats with Mary and Martha in chapter 10. He defines the orientation of the kingdom as the one that looks away from self and religious ritual and towards others as he eats with Pharisees again in chapter 11. He establishes the reversal of exclusion promised in the eschaton when he tells the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, and he establishes his identity as one who seeks and saves the lost when he eats with Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Jesus, throughout Luke's gospel, and particularly in the Emmaus episode, reveals himself and the kingdom at the table. In Luke, the table is the place where the kingdom of God is fully experienced. That's important. That the table is the place where the kingdom of God is fully experienced. Therefore, consider what people are being excluded from when they're excluded from the Lord's table. They're excluded from experiencing the kingdom, experiencing the identity of Jesus, and from the opportunity to have their hearts and eyes opened. As with the sinful woman in Zacchaeus, The table is not the place to come after believing. It is the place to come in order to believe or to deepen belief. The table is where people should be invited to experience Jesus and be called into a life of baptism and repentance. As the Emmaus story illustrates, it is only God who opens people's eyes and it is at the table where God in Jesus is experienced. Through a table experience, a person may find like Zacchaeus, that Jesus has been seeking after them and drawing them to the table with him. The reality of transformation at the table ought to be evident in the lives of all Christian believers who partake. Belief in baptism do not end a Christian's journey, making the Lord's Supper the nourishment to continue being what they already are, but the entire Christian life is a journey of transformation. The Lord's Supper is one of the means by which believers encounter Jesus and are further convicted and transformed into his image. If the Lord's table is transformative for the Christian through an experience of Jesus, why cannot the same be true for an unbeliever? Now, some have argued that the Lord's Supper, as a reminder of the character of Jesus' ministry, is meant to convict Christians of the mission to go out into the world and evangelize rather than being a means of of evangelism. However, I think this limits the vision of mission. Worship not only takes place inside the church and mission outside, but worship and mission are aspects of the Christian's entire life. I think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 of offering our life as a living sacrifice to God. The Lord's Supper is where Christians proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. The Lord's Supper is not only preparation for mission, it is part of the mission as a proclamation by Christians and an experience of Jesus and the kingdom by all invited. The Lord's table witnesses to the world the inclusiveness and grace characteristic of the kingdom. The Lord's table is not a means to mission, it is the location where mission begins. One additional point of inclusion I want to mention, even though we're only going to be able to talk about this rather briefly. As we began talking about traditionally, at least among churches of Christ, non-believers are not the only ones excluded from the table. So are those with disabilities who cannot comprehend the supper's meaning. 
Someone unable to comprehend the meaning of Jesus and the supper is also an individual who cannot believe and does not need baptism. The inability to believe and the lack of necessity for baptism, considered prerequisites for the Lord's Supper, excludes them from participation. Again, it's not that most churches would deny someone the opportunity to partake, but neither will they publicly commend someone who is unable to believe and comprehend the right to be at the table. This, too, misses the point of Jesus' inclusive table. Jesus' parable of the great banquet, envisioning the character of the eschatological table, includes those with disabilities. Jesus says it includes the crippled, the blind, and the lame. If the eschatological banquet, anticipated by the Lord's Supper, will include those with disabilities, so should the Lord's table. Our table now should look like heaven. Additionally, excluding those who cannot comprehend the meaning of the supper is to exclude them from the same experience of Jesus held back from non-Christians. Jesus' ministry, as previously established, is all-inclusive. Everyone is invited to experience Jesus and no one is excluded. To exclude those with disabilities from the table is to exclude them from the right to fully experience Jesus and the kingdom and therefore makes them second-class citizens of the kingdom. If the Lord's Supper is one of the places where the identity of Jesus and life in the kingdom is experienced, then no one must be excluded, but all must be allowed to experience and be loved by the risen Lord, both the Christian, the non-Christian, and even those with disabilities. Okay. Well, there we go. Uh, I don't don't think I can say, well, I'm not going to say whether I'm convinced or not, but I will say it was pretty good <laughs> of a discussion. Uh, the for me, because I, I would love to throw this out to the the listener of you know, do you agree? How do you feel about this conclusion and all of this? I'll just kind of throw my my thing in here. Uh, for me, the the this very much seems uh, similar similar to our discussion, new heavens, new earth, um, where we have missed. We we have framed the eternal reward discussion kind of all wrong. Um, even even tonight, I'm working on the beginning of Second Thessalonians and the way that Paul describes heaven and hell, or uh, I, I should say reward and punishment uh, in First and Second Thessalonians is with the Lord and away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, And that's not the way that we typically talk about those subjects. It's uh, hell is this torturous, eternal damnation, condemnation experience. Heaven is, you know, better than anything that you can imagine and all of this. But that's the wrong framing. The right framing is this is with God. The other is away from his presence. That's that's the reward and that's the, the punishment. And so our our lens is all wrong. Uh, And that's a big point you've made in all of this of, well, Lord's Supper is evangelistic. Sure, but it's not just that. And to to do that is limiting the scope of what it's trying to achieve. Uh, It's it's a memorial. Yeah, but but not only that, you know, it's that's limiting the scope uh, of what it's trying to achieve. And so the the framework being uh, us having a lens that's been lost 
uh, and, and limited is something that's convincing to me in a lot of ways. The second thing is, as we've gone through this series of episodes, the number of times we see Jesus eating at the table, and yes, he addresses, you know, I, uh, I, physicians needed for the, the sick, not those who are well. Like he's saying that when he's being questioned about being at a table together, uh, I came to seek and save that which was lost, and all of that with Zacchaeus. Like he, he addresses the sinfulness, but it's not a barrier to the table. It is a discussion at and around the table. Um, but that's not how we do that. I might have a sermon that is addressing sinful behavior, mm-hmm. but I'm not inviting those people to <laughs> to the table and all of that. It's, oh, we'd love for you to get this thing right and all of that stuff and come join you. And then obviously Lord's Supper. Uh, we don't exclude really anything else within worship at all uh, from the the non-Christian. Well, that's that's one of the things that when I started this, my, my mom had some questions for me. She there wasn't convinced. <laughs> uh, and and one of the things that I said was I said, I, I made that point. I said, why can a non-Christian participate in everything else that we do in worship with the belief that we, we believe they will encounter God and something good will yeah. happen? But we the Lord's Supper doesn't count. That they not only cannot participate in that, but to me that also lends to the, well, if they do, they're not going to, it, it's the same thing's not going to happen. They're not going to encounter God and hopefully have a transformative experience. And what I see in Luke's gospel is that Luke says, not only is that the case, but I think Luke would say that in worship, the place where Jesus is exper- and the kingdom is experienced the best is supposed to be around the table. Hmm. That the, the the table is the best image of the kingdom. Because if you think about what we do in worship, we pray. We get to communicate with God. Fantastic. That we preaching, so God communicating with us, uh, fantastic. We sing together, we so we praise God, F- fantastic. But the I think that the table, and we miss some of this in the way we take communion today, but I think the table is the place where you see the church as a community or as a family yeah. the best. Yeah. And that's what the kingdom is. The kingdom is a community. The kingdom is a family. And where do you see and experience that the best if not around a table? And so when I preach this, I, I, I encouraged my church, regardless of what you think about who should be allowed to take communion or not, because we're not you know, checking IDs at the door. So to, to a degree, it, it, it doesn't matter uh, I, to to the, the average Joe a, a whole lot. But this is what I said. I said, let let's, my encouragement was for us to be table people, not, not to be primarily anything else, uh, whether that be Bible people or preaching people or worship people or whatever we want to be my encouragement was table people people who sit around tables who invite people to tables and engage in all of Mm -hmm. that other stuff Uh, that my encouragement for was for us to do life first and foremost around a table and it seems to me that 
when Paul was establishing churches and when he's writing to this churches, that's his goal is to create these family communities. Yeah. And families exist around a table. Families come together at tables and share meals together. And the church family is the exact same way. And so I think that's the place where you see and experience the church as a family and the kingdom and Jesus the best. And so why would we exclude anyone? Because we're excluding them from that opportunity to see and experience Jesus and the church and the family and the the kingdom. Um, I want to say two sure. things real quick before I forget. I know we're, we're running long, but uh, there's two... Uh, th- th- there's two retorts that I get when I say this. Well, really one, most people don't mention the other one, but the other one I see is a, a one caveat to my argument. The first is people want to go to 1 Corinthians 11 and taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Sure. Um, first off, uh, Paul, first off, Paul's not talking about non-believers. He's talking to believers who are acting like non-believers, which is a very different thing. Uh, yeah, first off. But if you read 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's point, I think, he uses this term body, Jesus' body or Christ's body. And if you read through it, what you'll notice is it Paul isn't always clear what body he's talking about. Right. Is it the body in the Lord's Supper, is it the church is the body of Christ, or is it Jesus' actual body that he lived in, that he died in, that was raised and is now in heaven? Like, which body is Paul talking about? And when I teach on 1 Corinthians 11, my argument is that it's all three. That Paul's point is, if, as the body of Christ, when you sit around the table and you take of the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper, One of the things you have to think about is how you relate to the other bodies that make up the body of Christ. Like like all of that comes into play. And his point is, is you can't take the body of Christ and as a body be divided because that's not the body of Christ. Like he said, you, you, you can't, you can't have it both ways. And so his point is when you take of it, you think about the way that you're living as the body of Christ and you solve that, which is one of the arguments that I made about our inclusivity around the table, is just thinking about, as I take of the body of Christ, am I living as the body of Christ ought to live? Am I living as the way that Jesus in his body lived? Um, and so, but again, Paul's point there is specifically for the the Christian. So he's not telling... Uh, non-Christians that you can't take the Lord's Supper because you're not living as Christ lived because Paul doesn't expect non-Christians to live that way because they don't believe in Jesus. Yes. But he does expect if you actually believe in Jesus then live like Jesus and that the Lord's Supper is a moment where we can correct those things. And I think Paul's problem is you've been taking the Lord's Supper for months or years or whatever it's been and you haven't fixed yeah. anything. Paul's like, that's a problem. I don't think he said, I, I don't necessarily think it's, well, if you have any problem at all, you can't take of the Lord's Supper because then nobody could take of it. Right. I think Paul's point is you obviously haven't been taking it right because look at the way that you're living. 
Because if you take the Lord's Supper right, you encounter Jesus and experience the kingdom and you fix those things, right? My argument is that the same thing happens for a non-Christian. So if Paul thinks the Corinthians should come to the table and encounter Jesus and fix their division problems, I think Paul could also easily just to say a non-Christian comes to the table and encounters Jesus and fixes all of their non-Christian problems. Like that, that's my argument. That it's, we invite people because they experience Jesus and it leads to repentance and salvation and baptism and life in Christ in the non-Christian because it does the same thing for the Christian, in essence. And I actually think 1 Corinthians 11 proves that point because I think that's the point that Paul's making. Just within Christians, he's saying this is the way the Lord's Supper is meant to function. And my point is, why can't it function like that in the life of the non-Christian? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, the, um, there's the statement made in First Corinthians five about the, the do not associate with the sexually immoral, and Paul's like, I didn't mean in the world. <laughs> we want to be evangelistic with them. I'm talking about you guys that know better and aren't yeah. correct. Yeah, he's he's like you'd, you'd have to be. You couldn't right. live in the world if that's what I was saying. Uh, and that's actually the next point that I want to go to. First Corinthians five, uh, eleven. Uh, the man sleeping with his father's right. wife. Paul says in verse eleven, "Do not even eat with such a mm-hmm. one." Uh, so that's in a footnote in my thesis because I mentioned I'm like I don't have time to sure. deal with that. It's beyond the scope of of what I'm writing. But that could be used to say that the one caveat is maybe you exclude a Christian from the table who's refusing to repent. Yeah. yeah. Because again, if my point is you come to the table and the table leads to repentance and that's not happening. Cause again, in first Corinthians five, it, it's not like one thing happened one time and Paul's like, get right. rid of that guy. It's a perpetual problem that the Man's encounter with the church and with Jesus in the church isn't causing the rightful transformation. Paul says, okay, exclude them, and maybe the exclusion will now lead to the rightful transformation. Is is yeah. kind of Paul's point there. And so, uh, again, maybe you could make an argument if you invited non-believers to the table, maybe there's a cutoff at some point. But I, I still don't think that's the case because you can't, if you exclude someone from the church, well, and that's supposed to lead them to repentance because they want back in, you can't do that with a non-Christian because they were never in. Yes. Yeah, you cannot disfellowship right? those and, and, outside of the fellowship. And that's, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like the, the, there may be a little caveat there when it comes to like church discipline. But again, Paul's not talking about what we're talking about. Yeah. And I even think what Paul's saying can fit into this overall vision if we change the way we think about the lord's supper and especially as churches of christ who i said who i said getting oriole which you know it's become for many of our churches it's like a funeral it's the most it's the saddest most depressing thing i've ever done is take the lord's (laughs) supper in some churches Uh, but that's that's not the point it's, it is a memorial, and we do remember, but there's something bigger going on there. And when we bring Jesus into the present at the Lord's Supper, 
um, we expand our thinking of what can happen at the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Because if Jesus is present in ways that he's not present at other times and in other places and in other spaces, which is, I think, the whole point of worship. Like, we believe that at worship, we come in contact with God in a different way than we do in the day-to-day. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I think we're all on board with that, which is why we want non-Christians to come to church. But if, like I said, if there's ex- an experience of God in the Lord's Supper that's not, not only different than the day-to-day, but also different than everything else we do in worship, why are we excluding them from that? And even if you can't get on board with the non-Christian, I, I feel like uh, we at least need to get on board with disabilities. Sure. Um, yeah. And to me, hot take, but this would include in all of that, that would include our children who have yet to reach an age of accountability where they can understand right mm. from wrong. Because my argument would be to exclude them. Because here's the problem. We consider the child who can't yet understand. And we consider the person with a low-functioning disability. We consider both of them as members of the kingdom. Right? right? Um, But we don't allow them full membership into the kingdom. And from my viewpoint, the only place that happens is at the table like i i I don't know i don't know anywhere else that a child or a person with disabilities is like yeah you can't do that right right like you can't sing you can't come to worship you can't like we we don't it's like no you're 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 a part of the community you're a part of of the kingdom you're you're a part of the 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 church and it's in the church that that we teach you and yeah there are some of these age markers like baptism and stuff like that 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 come when you believe but your whole life is preparing you for the next step in the kingdom like like i don't think and most of us don't actually act like this because it's like I, i don't think a child who's growing up in the church is not a part of the kingdom and then is baptized is now a part of the kingdom that they haven't actually been a part of the whole time though they've been at church every time the doors are open i think it's the next step in their maturing process as a follower of jesus um because they're already like you talk to a child who can't fully understand good from evil who's grown up in the church they're gonna tell you they're following jesus yeah. Why do we send them to church camp? Like, why do we do VBS? Like, why? Why Why do we have children's Bible classes if we don't believe they can follow Jesus? We just believe that they're at a different phase in the development. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems to me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm off base on that, but I think there's a lot of theological problems with saying they're completely outside of the kingdom. Yeah, I think um, Jesus would have some issues with that too, because the disciples did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they actually excluded children, and Jesus is like that's not what we do. Um, yeah, and let the children come to me. And if Jesus is sitting at the table, why isn't why do we think Jesus isn't still mm-hmm. saying that? Let the children come to me, and we're we end up being like the disciples, and we say no, no children allowed here um it 
I don't know. I, I think even with the way we believe about the Lord's Supper now, without a paradigm shift, I'm not sure if the logic to that holds if you push it hard sure. enough. Um, unless, again, you want to go with completely outside of the kingdom, which I think that's where the argument would have to lie. Yeah. Um, but it does... I mean, it, it is to me, it is making them second-class citizens of the kingdom and i i for one have a take issue with that but children aren't the only people that we do that to uh but that's a conversation for another day well on this conversation uh those of you listening we'd love to hear what you think about all of this you know it it, it had been a while so we decided to give you two episodes today that's the (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so there's a lot to take in and a lot to go over and definitely check out the show notes on uh thinkingtheologically.org read through those things as well and a lot of this last i think 15 minutes or so was extra stuff that develops off of it but i think a good example of what we talk about when we mean thinking theologically of going through discussion and working through these things and you know if this is true then what about this thing here and uh, eventually arriving at conclusions uh, on those things uh, but coming to those conclusions not because of uh, tradition or uh, what what you've held to forever um, but uh, through wrestling with ideas and discussions and topics and and going from there. So we'd love to hear what you think. Strongchurchministries at gmail.com is where you can email us about whatever you've got on your mind with this subject or others. Uh, you can also get a hold of us on Facebook and make sure you like Thinking Theologically there to get updated on when different posts go live and check out thinkingtheologically.org. I think that does it for this episode. We'll be uh, I'll say moving on, but we may, you know, I don't know what, what are some of our one-shot uh, things might look like. So we may revisit the subject depending on questions and other things, but we'll be moving on to some different topics here pretty soon, and we hope you join us for those. I'm Jack, and that's Spencer. We'll see you next time.